Welcome to the Business of Government. I'm Amanda Lang. This is a special podcast series for The Hub. On it, we're aiming to take a closer look at how our governments function in Canada. Things like their effectiveness, but also their failures. We're taking a nonpartisan, non-jaundiced view of how what's arguably the most important service is delivered to Canadians. And our aim is to understand what we could do better, differently, what's going wrong, and maybe even celebrating some things that we're getting right. Some of the subjects that we want to explore include why it sometimes feel like our governments just aren't that good at big projects. Big procurements seem to go wrong time and again, from new jet planes, commissioning ships, to of course the famous IT system that pays federal bureaucrats. It can feel like government bungles things as much as possible and at a much greater rate than the private sector. In this series, we want to ask the question, how is government functioning? Is it working well? Where are the shortfalls? What could be done better? We're also going to look at the size of government. Sometimes it only ever seems to increase in size. Is there an ideal size for governance? And we're harking back to nudge policies. Remember them? Are they still being used? And could our own psychological behaviors be used to better effect to help govern us better? So let's get started. This week, a look at the politics and policies shaped by nudge thinking or the use of behavioral psychology to shape outcomes. Nudges have been used successfully for decades now, but are they being used as well as they could? And in this ever polarized world, is a nudge a little too delicate to get the job done? Michael Hallsworth is managing director of the BIT Americas, a leading behavioral insights consultant, which grew out of a unit of the UK government in the early 2000s. He's also author of the book, Behavioral Insights. It's so good to have you for this, Michael. We really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Michael, I want to start with, you know, Nudge got a lot of attention, obviously, uh, including, you know, really important economic surprises uh, in terms of how it could be used by government. Where are we with it? We know it's alive and well, and there's definitely some recent evidence of its use, including in pandemic. Characterize where it is on its journey. Yeah, sure. So the the book Nudge came out in 2008, and it really sparked a lot of interest in this field. But you have to remember there had been interest building in other senses as well. So government's been kind of increasingly receptive to use behavioral science. The financial crisis had kind of made them look for other options uh, as well about doing things, uh, particularly ones that didn't cost a lot of money. And that, that meant that there have been a a broader kind of trend to being interested in behavioral science. Nudge was really like the catalyst, the spark, the lit, the, the flame, and it got a lot of attention. But what's been clear over the last 15 years is there's been a kind of behavioral science, behavioral insights movement mm-hmm. that has been applied in the public sector that is broader than the concept of, of nudge. And it's just worth being aware of this because the idea of nudge is uh, one where you you basically set up options so people are more likely to choose one that benefits themselves, uh, but they're free to choose otherwise. It's kind of created to appeal both to left and right, but it also has certain limitations. It says that like legislation, taxation, they're off the agenda. We don't look at those. Now, of course, what's happened is that there's been a broader application which says, well, behavioral science is a body of kind of knowledge, a way of doing things a way of understanding human behavior that can be applied, for example, to improve the way taxation works, improve the way legislation works, rather than saying it's nothing to do with that. 
So where we are right now is we've had a tremendous amount of success. There's been a lot of attention, a lot of investment. There have been 300 separate kind of institutional teams Mm -hmm. uh, set up around the world to draw on this this body of knowledge. That has a kind of ecosystem has grown up. What I think now is we are moving into a new phase of maturity where we know, roughly speaking, what kind of size of improvement we can get from a certain type of intervention. We also know that we need to kind of broaden out the way we're thinking about behavioral science rather than just sort of thinking about, you know, nudges and uh, the fact that people often react in non-conscious ways. There's a broader agenda here around people's goals, motivations, and so on that we can take into account. And so I think we are moving into that phase. We've made the case for behavioral science. People have shown and know it can make a difference. And now it's a question of how much difference does it make? What's the right option in which circumstance? How much difference does it make for different populations? That additional level of sophistication and maturity is where we're at now after about 15 years. So, and I think that's a really great distinction to make, especially because I think a lot of us have maybe retained a more simplistic view of how behavioral science can be used. Is it safe to say that there are now, and I'm going to oversimplify a little bit here, but uh, so forgive me, but is it safe to say that there are now almost two kind of categories and one would be behavioral science as it relates to the user or consumer or recipient of information or policies, but also this growing body that I think you might be part of, of how you use behavioral science and the understanding of it to build complex systems, of which governments are one, right? They're, they're internally, departments are super, super complex. And which of those two do you think is kind of the more, I hate to say important, but where is sort of the fun work being done? There are a few different ways of cutting this. And you can think about the emphasis on like individuals and systems, or you can think about the emphasis on like policy or government itself. The The, the flexibility is kind of, quite helpful, I would say. So a few different angles. I think there's a massive underappreciated opportunity here to improve the way government works itself. And about five years ago, I I did a whole kind of uh, report, a set of uh, recommendations on how you might do this called behavioral government. And it basically took the point that, you know, in behavioral science, behavioral policy, nudge, we've been very much talking about how does government do things if you like, two people in a very simplistic sense. How does it set policies up? But actually, policymakers, government departments, they use the same mental shortcuts that we all do. They're not immune to that. So governments are over-optimistic, you know, in terms of their plans. Large projects go over budget. There is groupthink. When people are in the room, in small groups, they tend to reinforce what each other is thinking, and decisions become more extreme. Some people say, oh, that means that government should just get out of the business of trying to influence behavior because it's not perfect. I disagree. I think there are ways you can build institutions differently, change the way they work to make these kinds of, if you like, biases less likely to happen. Requires an institutional approach, though. Like, for example, building in breakpoints where you say, like, let's reassess the assumptions. There's an idea called pre-mortems. Uh, where instead of a post-mortem, where you work out what what went wrong, you try to work out what could go wrong in advance. You give people the license to think about those doubts in the back of their mind yeah. and bring them out. 
so one of the things, this is a, a little tangential, but I feel like it's important to introduce this concept fairly. And that is, um, I was looking at some data on how uh, journalists, the media, anybody who should be in a kind of a quasi-critical role of how policies are developed and implemented, have been interestingly tilted in favor of the use of behavioral techniques and psychology, nudge, uh, if you will. And that, you know, we could say, well, that's because it's all common sense. But it can also be alarming that we uh, it, it feels like a smart thing for governments to do and that therefore we're maybe a little less uh, healthily critical about how it might be abused. Because, of course, it's ripe for abuse. Uh, do you think we're in the right place on how we just how we think about it in terms of how benign we assume it will be? Really great question. So few ways of thinking about it. I cannot obviously control what everyone else does with behavioral science. Right. If the um, the genies have the bottle in a way and people will know that these kind of ideas exist. And so like many tools, they can be used for better or worse purposes. I do know that the field of behavioral science has been thinking about um, ethics and what it were appropriate kind of ways of dealing with that. My view is that you can't deal with that kind of stuff in the abstract. You need a kind of framework that allows you to work through your the case in front of you and, and work out the costs and benefits involved and what people do people have a strong intention in, in a particular instance um, that needs to be respected, for example. So I think that's a real concern. I think part of the reason that people haven't maybe been as critical as we wondered they would be, maybe at the start of, of all this. It's because they've actually seen that a lot of the applications by governments have been fairly uncontroversial. Mm -hmm. They've been things like helping people to pay their taxes on time. They've been more kind of banal things um, that are really important in terms of making government work, but they haven't strayed into those more controversial areas because I think some of the guardrails have been there. There are bigger concerns, you might say, around, for example, tech companies um, have a vast amount of data with a lot of precision. They also can employ what's known as dark patterns. So this is around building your online environment to encourage you to spend, right. to you know keep, keep you, you hooked and so on. Now, there, there's very little kind of awareness of, of that because the data and the techniques are often held by private companies. And I think there is increasing interest in that because people know that behavioral science can be powerful. It varies by context, but it can be. Mm -hmm. And it can be used for these purposes, which maybe people didn't sign up for. So it's a really complex area right now. I think it could, there are reasons it can be dangerous. I think in the past, it's been more, people have been positive about it because it's been less controversial, but that doesn't mean it won't be in the future. Well, one, I guess one place where we do see, and it's muted criticism relative to um, the way temperatures have been around this subject, but we know that the UK government, for instance, and others did use some behavioral psychology around vaccine mandates, around health mandates in the pandemic. Do you see some of those as uh, an appropriate use? Uh, because I guess what I would say is, and uh, the, the dovetail question that I would ask is whether the danger of trying to use some of these, um, these understandings is an oversimplification because in order to 
you know, to fit them neatly into, uh, you know, a proposition, you do sort of have to distill things down to very simple. Now, maybe the public needs things simplified and we can't actually lay complex problems before a broad citizenship and hope that they come to the right answer. I don't know. But we certainly didn't see a lot of that. We saw very over we saw oversimplifications of big, complex problems during pandemic. Is that the only way to do it? And is that does behavioral sort of economics lend itself to that? So I, I'm I'm not actually aware of behavioral economics related to like vaccine mandates or anything. A mandate really is can be just a very simple kind of use of the power of the state. If you like, it doesn't require any behavioral economics input. What I do think is that over the course of um, 10, 15 years, there has been a, um, a a drive to increase the understanding of behavioral science in government by me and others because. We've taken the view that if you want evidence-based policy, there is evidence about human behavior, and it makes sense to people to know the right, you know, evidence that is actually accurate mm-hmm. as opposed to assumptions. Right. Now, in that in that process, you may have to simplify. Like if I say to you, most people are influenced by what others do in the same situation. This is like a social norm point. Right. Have you considered social norms? I am simplifying here. Sometimes people aren't. It depends what group you're referring them to. Uh, if that's a group they admire or one they really don't like, that you can have opposite reactions. Now, if I go around saying that, what may come through is the kind of quite basic understanding that you should do this. And that, if misapplied or applied in the wrong way with good intentions, can lead to a worse outcome. So I think there's something in that. Like mm-hmm. I think the broader awareness has been achieved but that doesn't mean you're automatically going to, get, going to get a good outcome. So I think that is a risk. Um, I think overall the benefit has been positive. You've got a, a positive net benefit, but those risks are there. One thing that did occur to me uh, is that as we see increased use of um, you know machine learning technologies, artificial intelligence, married up with some of these tools, and they are tools, and and you know some of them have been quite well developed. Is there sort of a new wrinkle in this puzzle? And in fact, do people like you even worry about losing control, I guess, of how these things evolve? So I I definitely think there is um, a question here. And I think it goes back maybe to the ethical appropriateness question. My my concern is that a lot of the time machine learning um, has been spoken about in like a technocratic way, like look at the new things we might be able to do. Mm-hmm. We can combine behavioral science uh, with machine learning to create targeted interventions that are really effective. Or we can test to see how effective they are. But there is, a, I think, a prior question about what are the what are the bounds of acceptability here? What do people want? How do you prevent it being creepy? How do you prevent it being inappropriate? Because we've tended, I mean, governments have tended to offer services at scale for everybody. What level of personalization are we comfortable with from government, which is funded by general taxation normally? Mm -hmm. I don't think there is a technical answer to those questions. I think it's it's a political one. But I don't know who's having that debate, to be honest with you. And I think it is an important one. For example, we in many countries, men pay more than women for car insurance. And we sort of accept that. But if you were to look at other demographic or characteristics, paying more for something, you wouldn't feel as comfortable. So <laughs> this feels like a massive unknown debate that, that should be had, really, before you start thinking about, let's do these really, really targeted interventions. 
You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Do you believe in a philosophical way that when we think about just using, I'm going to keep saying nudge, but I know that it's it's bigger than nudge, it's more complex than that, but using behavioral tools and psychology, it kind of lends itself to a big government mentality? Is it antithetical to say, I believe in a small, lean government that will leave me alone much of the time, but when I when I do relate to it, it may be using some of these policies? How do you see that kind of tension? I don't think that's necessarily true. And I would say that rather than seeing behavioral science as a tool necessarily, I think it's better to see it as a lens through which you see actions. And I mean this because I think it also can lead you to reassess things. So it may lead you to say, well, actually, the solution here is not to uh, not to have a, not to have an intervention. Actually, hmm. that may not be the best thing, or it may lead you to realize, actually, ex- an existing intervention we have is counterproductive. Now we think about how it's actually going to influence behavior, or it may lead you to say, rather than trying to change behavior, let's design a policy around people's existing behaviors. I also think there is a strand of um, the way behavioral science has been applied, which is about making sure that public money is used wisely. Um, or effectively, because the way this has grown up has been around testing things. We can't assume, given behavior is complex, that something is going to have a particular effect. So we always kind of try and test it and scrutinize it. And I think that's a nonpartisan approach as well, because it may lead you to conclude that something doesn't work. And I have been in situations where I've said, this thing we tried didn't work. That is not the same as saying, like, you just Go keep doing more and more and make your government bigger. That's like taking a kind of reassessing approach to government. So I don't think it's a simple thing as as it, it means a bigger government at all, actually. It can be used in various ways. And I guess to your point, it can be used to really improve the existing delivery of services. Is it being used that way? I mean, are we is this that one of the tools governments are using worldwide, governments that are thinking this way, about trying to be better? Yes. So, for example, um, in the US, certainly, um, over the last eight years as an organization, we've spent a lot of time working with governments to improve their ability to run rapid trials and experiments. This is through the What Works Cities program from Bloomberg Philanthropies, which actually is now expanding to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, it works with cities to to help them use data and experimentation to improve the way they deliver services and understand what effects they're having. So I do think it can be really kind of integral. I don't see this as a kind of nice to have. I think it can be really kind of central to the way governments work because most policy and most service provision is intended to have some kind of behavioral effects. Like you want people to put their uh, put their bins out at the right time. If you're a city, you want people to pay the taxes on time. 
focusing that way, understanding what the effects are through testing and through even doing strategies that take this stuff into account mm-hmm. is kind of the core thing that government should be doing, in my view. So one of the more depressing facts I learned about uh, behavioral psychology when it came to personal finance is that uh, education, teaching people more about personal finance, which has been the goal in many people's worlds for a long time, then they'll get better at it, we think, isn't actually one of the most uh, effective tools. Even when people know more about it, they still don't behave better about it, which is to me quite depressing. Maybe given everything you know about human beings, you take that in stride. But that kind of reality about our human limitations to me says, when if we take this to its extreme, if we continue to kind of build out systems that really respond well to how limited and fragile and vulnerable our own behaviors and brains are, uh, you know, the way the way our brains actually interact with our world and experiences, we actually will get further and further away from a kind of empowerment that has to do with our understanding of why we're doing things. I know that's a very extreme view, but do you see that as a continuum where it it kind of leads people away from real agency? I actually don't think that um, because I don't think the distinction is as clear. So for two reasons, one, behavioral science can be used to improve education. So um, this is the idea of, uh, if you like, a boost, which is uh, a kind of framed as an alternative to nudge, mm-hmm. although, you know, the it's a range of options you choose from. And that's where you teach people um, how to uh, use mental shortcuts or develop mental shortcuts so they um, achieve behaviors that fulfill their goals. So it might be, for example, using um, entrepreneurs who are just starting out, helping them use um, simple rules of, of rules of thumb, mental shortcuts about organizing their accounts. And that has been shown to work better than traditional education. It's harnessing the um the the processes that behavioral science uncovers and the other thing i would say is that um if you expand on that behavioral science can be used to sort of empower people more generally um if people are aware of actually what produces a uh, a, a certain behavior they can kind of invest in that so if you find that for example redesigning your environment in small ways is much more effective than relying on willpower I'm not disempowering you by telling you that that fact. In fact, I would say the opposite. I'm helping you do something more effective by taking into account um, the fact that we tend to overestimate how we all resist temptation, for example, or we tend to overestimate our ability to, um, yeah, use willpower when we're we're confronted with um, different options. That, for me, is empowerment, helping people understand the role of their own how behavior comes about from them and then and then addressing that. I guess I'm thinking more of an example, and I think it's a real life example, maybe not, uh, but it's one that I've seen often of, you know, making the glasses smaller in the bar uh, so that people drink less unwittingly. And you're not, you're actually charging them less. You're not stealing or anything, but uh, you, you are changing their behavior without their permission or without their knowledge. Uh, there are some of us who would say, well, that's great because I didn't notice. And so I guess I don't need as much. But there are others who will say, I didn't make that choice. And I and they just rebel against that. And I feel as though that category is pretty big these days of, of people that certainly in our country, we feel and in the U.S., I think that's safe to say there are people who simply don't want official agencies, whether that's the government or other bodies of authority, telling them 
uh, what to do, and they certainly don't want it happening without their knowledge. Well, I think the first question is, who is we? Because what definitely has happened is that portion sizes ha- have increased mm-hmm. over the last uh, 40 years. Now, the question is whether, like, did people, uh, were people con- consulted? What form of consul- consultation would you like? It's more like the market decided that people wanted right. to buy it, advertising, simulated demand, and so on. So there's a real question about who is, like, making the, de- the decision here. And is it like, what level of scrutiny do we have on one side or the other side? Because if you are saying that that maybe bars are offering smaller glasses and charging less, I think that's just the equivalent of them offering bigger glasses or offering a bigger burger. I, I found out recently that Wendy's introduced the triple burger to get people to buy the double burger, and it was a massive success. This is in behavioral science, it's called the decoy effect. So this kind of stuff's happening all the time. When do we react badly to that? Or when do we just say, oh, well, that's just more choice mm-hmm. or a different kind of choice? You're right, though, that reactance, as we call it, like being really annoyed at being deprived of a choice is a very real thing. And it's not always predictable about when people are going to get really annoyed about it. Um, that's why I think it's really important to try and test some stuff in advance um, on a small scale, get people's reactions rather than just assuming you know because we can't always predict this. And you're right, it's a danger. And it's a problem we need to be aware of. We need to see the world as it is. I guess on that front, I've wondered whether the political polarization, you sort of alluded to this earlier, and I won't know the right behavioral science term for it, but that we do identify with groups seems to be a problem that needs to be addressed. Um, If we're trying to kind of help people get to certain places or make certain decisions, when the polarization is is it the, the sort of group identity identity politics is as strong as it is today, are there fixes for that? Are there things you think that governments are actually doing and thinking about to try to help reverse that a little bit? Really great question. Um, the there's no doubt that the like post rationalization of stuff is really powerful. You know there are there experiments showing that you are less likely to solve a kind of simple. Um, uh, math or maths question if uh, the answer goes against your political preconceptions. Like you're just like, it, it's very powerful. Now, how do you deal with this, some of those things? Well, there have been some uh, successful attempts to bridge um, groups. Uh, there's a really amazing study done by um, Betsy Pollock at, at Princeton around using the power of, of soccer, football to bring together um Israeli and Palestinian children um, that in an evidence-based way, bridging those kind of potential divides, you can create new groups that, although they're very kind of contingent, can actually be effective. You can also have things called deliberative forums where people get in there and they don't, rather than just arguing against each other, they have to engage with some kind of evidence. Over time, people's opinions do begin to shift as they get further under the surface. And sometimes just asking people to explain how they think um, something works can lead people to pause and reconsider. Because it actually turns out that you and me and everyone, we can be find this really difficult to actually explain something. There's this thing called the illusion of explanatory depth, where we think we know how things work. Mm-hmm. And then when we actually try and work it through, we go, oh, okay, interesting. I actually don't. So let's that can lead to some openness. So there are pointers, but it's a really tough area. Well, I'm curious to know whether you think 
given how much is going on still in this field and how, to your point, and I know you've just, you, you wrote a kind of a manifesto about where this science can go and things that people should be thinking about. And to me, there's a lot of optimism that we can bring to what this might do for us. Uh, understanding our human frailties, I think our, our neurological frailties seems like a really good place to kind of focus when we're trying to make things work better. Can we be optimistic that that will actually help? This is a political question almost, uh, so forgive me, but help us out of the place we're in, which is, it seems sometimes like a very dire negative place of, of polarization, of, of conflict and oppositional behaviors uh, by groups. Is this, are we, will, will our own self-knowledge uh, help us out of it? So my answer would be that it's not just about understanding frailties, it's also about understanding strengths. The rapid and non-conscious way we make judgments can also be very effective at helping us navigate our lives. Right. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I think it can help us if we, it helps us redirect our energies to the stuff that might actually influence behavior. So what I mean by that is the kind of organizations in which we make decisions, the processes that without even realizing it, take us in certain directions. That I think offers some hope. You know, there's a lot of work that's been done around something called conversational receptiveness as well by Julia Minson at Harvard. And that offers a route, for example, that is about having more effective conversations. So mm-hmm. like rather than just I give my opinion and I think you're wrong and I'm going to try and convince you of it by hammering it, uh, hammering it into your head. Conversational acceptance is about saying there are certain phrases that can open up the conversation and prevent that kind of defensiveness that will come about by someone's challenging my whole identity. And I'm going to react by just putting up the defenses. Now, I think that that is a a chink of light. I think there there are ways you can have a better conversation if you understand what leads to that defensiveness occurring. And it can be small things which also means small things can point you in the opposite direction. Hmm. So I think there are, uh, is some hope from the behavioral sciences, but you know, that's part of the solution has got to be just the hard political ones of de-escalating some of the polarization as well. So just bringing it back then to governments and where they are in their kind of thinking evolution of this, that seems like a really useful place for the political side of government to be thinking of course, they may not. They may feel they benefit more from some of the uh, the polarization out there, some of the conflicts. Do you think governments are in a good place in terms of how they're using behavioral sciences? I mean, that's a really big question. I think it varies. Like it obviously varies. I think that what has definitely happened is the base level of awareness about the some of the the main insights has increased. So I think people will have more pause rather than just putting together really poorly thought out policy. Um, I think one criticism is that maybe we still haven't got into the really big policy issues and trying to influence those through behavioral science. Um, And I think that's fair because I think a lot of the time we've focused on changing specific aspects of how things are done so we can show that they had an impact. Like you change this, you get that impact. But of course, a lot of these big problems are embedded in really big, complex systems. I think there is a potential here from behavioral science because you can focus on particular behaviors in a system that can then spread change 
in unpredictable ways throughout the system. And I think that's a way forward, which I really would encourage governments to embrace. And, you know, I've set out how they might do that in really kind of practical ways. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Up next on the business of government, making hard choices. We're talking to people who know firsthand the cost of making tough decisions in government. Mm-hmm.